Welcome back to In Search of Tarot, a podcast that examines, questions, and reimagines our approach to life and the cards. Through guest interviews and in-depth discussions, we'll explore and expand the beautiful complexities of spirituality, philosophy, magic, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Angie. And we're your hosts for this fascinating ride. Thanks for being here with us. Our guest today is Sanyu Estelle, a clear cognizant, clear knowing, soothsayer, truth teller that is also known as the word witch because of her deep love for word origins, etymology, and word culture, philology. These natural inclinations are bolstered by an 11 plus year practice of Taoism, as well as a 10 plus year relationship with Ifa, the indigenous tradition of the Yoruba people of now Nigeria. Sanyu is known for her straightforward card reading style and her way with words via writing, speaking, and singing. A first-generation-ish U.S. American of Ugandan and Belizean descent, Sanyu was born, bred, and buttered in Los Angeles on land traditionally stewarded by the Tongva. Many dream up the future, but it belongs to their descendants. Thus, Sanyu is the best thing that came out of her colonizer's lineage. She uses their-her own ancestry to denounce their indoctrination into the invention of whiteness through colonization. They are lucky to have her, and they ensured not only that she is, but what she is. Well, Sanyu, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about the contribution that you made to the book Tarot for Pregnancy. I got to speak to Brittany Carmona Holtz last season and was singing your praises to her at that time. You know, I just think that this is honestly the best source for tarot history that I've yet come across, completely honest. Um, and so I just am really excited to like dive into you with it and discuss, you know, how you created it and, and and just get to know you a little better. Sounds great. And thank you. You're my first official interview outside of Brittany and Row House Publishing about this chapter. So I'm excited to be here. Yay, that's awesome. So something that I kind of like to start with is who are you and where are you today in this present moment? I am Sanyu Estelle. I am a claircognizant soothsayer, um, which means I'm a clear knowing truth teller. And I'm also called the word witch because I am a word nerd. And that means that in particular, I'm interested in word origins, which would be called etymology and also word culture, which would be called philology. So I am basically a artist and a spiritualist uh, person. And I make a living by being myself and myself is made up of uh, esoteric practices, specifically Taoism and Ifa in the current moment, though I was raised um, Episcopalian. Mm. And I am also a writer and I am a singer and I am Mm-hmm. An artist. Yes. <laughs> so like I'm constantly making up the art and also the life is art, right? So I'm also a human being and a first generation-ish uh long ancestral story, but first generation-ish Californian. My mom being from Belize and my father being from Uganda. Amazing. You know, I was gonna say 
so many people that come on the show are, you know, multi-hyphenates, but like the truth is, I think we're all multi-hyphenates, you know, just artists kind of tend to wear that, those multi-hyphens on their sleeve, maybe a little bit more. um, Yeah out of maybe necessity and also out of necessity. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we all have all those things. So that's, that's amazing. Um, and I share your Episcopal upbringing as well. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I love Jesus. It's just, I, from an early age and I actually really grew up in a great church, but from an early age, I was just like, I had greater questions. I was like, but what about the universe? This book, like the book didn't do it for me. So I had to go further, farther for myself. (laughs) Totally. Um, So yeah, so before we dig into the history bit, um, Mm -hmm. I would love for you to kind of dig into that spiritual journey a little bit more, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what kind of took you maybe a little bit more away from the Episcopal faith, you know, how did you find Taoism and and Aoife Mm -hmm. and just, Mm -hmm. just kind of all of that. I would love to hear about all that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Belizeans are spiritualist people. Like, even though, I mean, Belize and Uganda were both colonized by the British, so they have that in common. But like different periods and also different cultures, Africans in general, I find, at least talking to my other um, uh, first generation or Afro diasporic friends, is a place where, I mean, it's also where the birth of these Abrahamic religions happened because I talk often about like Egypt and and Moses and like where these places actually were physically today as we as we look at Africa Mm -hmm. but so I think that Africans took back took Roman Christianity back in a way or even Byzantine Christianity as far as the east coast is concerned in which was at the time Catholicism which all goes into the history of the tarot that we'll talk about later but like um they take Christianity back in a more fervent way and like sort of in several regions at least and specifically in Uganda where my dad is from um the indigenous traditions sort of really fell to the wayside through uh colonialism but in the Caribbean it was a different situation in Belize Um, even though Belizeans, like, first of all, Belize was a melting pot because it was Africans and Maya people and then like British, but specifically like sort of like Scottish people, Irish people, and then also sort of different mixes that came around from the region, particularly like Arawak, Garifuna people who are Arawak and like Western African, and there were specific regions. So there was that, whereas in Uganda, it was more of like like the tribal homogenous cultures that had evolved over many, 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 many millennia. Mm -hmm. And so Christianity just like doesn't hit the same way. So Belizean people will also, they'll believe in God and the Bible and stuff. And they'll also see auras and believe in ghosts and like do all these things. And that's all a part of the culture. And so I was raised Episcopalian and I did have to go to church every Sunday until I was 18 that I wasn't sick or out of town. But I wasn't discouraged from like reading about astrology or, um, you know, watching stuff about witches or reading Harry Potter. Like those are all things that even if the church was like, nah, my parents were like, it's fine. So I didn't grow up in a prohibitive spiritual environment, um, Mm -hmm. even though 
I was I had to go to church. I mean, that was prohibitive. <laughs> but like other than that, you know, by the time like I was allowed to explore other things. So I love my church community and I still talk to people from church and I'll still go to my church occasionally. It was just that I had greater questions that weren't being answered. And so exploring around in my youth, you know, before I was 18, I had like, I, I still have some of these books, like books I bought from Barnes and Noble way back in the day that was like Wicca this or like astrology this and things that I don't think I ever really read through or um, took seriously or like clung to. I didn't read anything before 18 that really was speaking to me more than my own community. Like part of the reason I practice Taoism and Ifa is because I don't think of them as like religions in that they're not proselytizing. They're not right. like trying to convert anyone. Like they're like, figure that shit out on your own, like come to it yourself. Um, and they're not giving anything out, you know, right. especially when you're in doing the practices with people who are really doing the practices instead of trying to like sell something to you. And then with Ifa, um, one of my my other best friends, I called my sister from another Miss Star, <laughs> sister from another Miss Star. Um, we have very similar lives. She's a little older than me, but like we've gone through a lot of similar things, including having a lot of the same teachers. And she had been asking me if I wanted to come to she's a Nigerian, which is where Ifa is, is it's the indigenous practice of the Yoruba people of what we now call Nigeria. And she's Yoruba uh, and Igbo. So she had been asking me if I wanted to come to service and I had like been putting it off for a few years. And then I also went to school in upstate New York and then I went to school in the Netherlands. So like I was back and mm -hmm. forth and it was in LA, but eventually when I landed back in LA, I went. And from that point, I just kept attending services. And from that, and really with Ifa, you can attend services your whole life and never be prompted to in initiate or anything like that. But you get Dafa, which is like divination. Um, you can get it once a year, but, you know, not more than every three months. And um, as you get the Dafa over time, Ifa will tell you whether or not you need to initiate. And so just slowly over just going to services and enjoying the community and enjoying the practices and, um, the requirements of Ifa, um, because Ifa has lots of requirements, whereas in my opinion, Taoism doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, it has all the requirements and none of them. But like them together answer enough in addition to my esoteric, exoteric, esoteric life, my lived experience, and then those sort of like clandestine unknowable experiences where you experience something that one of my old teachers used to call an, an irreconcilable discontinuity, mm. which is something that when it happens, you can never remember yourself as if it hadn't happened. Uh -huh. So that can be like a death, a birth, a move, a breakup, you know, whatever that might be for you. And so for me, that was like seeing a UFO up close. Like then there's shit like that that I've had where I was like, okay, <laughs> there's things going on here. And all that before I ever really read tarot for anyone. Wow. Wow. So yeah, it's, you strike me as someone very like hungry for knowledge, you know, and like pulling in lots of strands. And I'm wondering if you, cause you, you opened kind of that share by sharing a lot of history already. And so was history something that always has interested you or like, where did that kind of come in? 
Yeah, you know, I'm and I don't think of it as history. I think at least when I was young, like the person, the versions of me who got this me here uh-huh. didn't think of it that way. And it was funny, too, because I was a um, sociology and political science double major in undergrad. Okay. And um, then I got into an argument with the sociology department and they in retrospect, very like illegally made me a government major and a sociology minor without my without telling me. And so I had to make up all these fucking like political science credits. And I ended up which like in the history department a lot because they were right next door. Mm -hmm. And there were a few classes that I took that I was like, oh, fuck, maybe I should have been a history. Maybe I was like trying doing sociology because I wanted history. But for me, I didn't go that route because history like especially like the down to the name always felt so very like uh patriarchal and mm-hmm. like phallic and also of course you know very white society patriarchal and so I didn't lean that way but the way that my mind thought about it at the time was like I want to get to the, get to the root of things you yeah know? like I want to find the reason that things happen as opposed to the symptoms of the happenings Right. And um, and so definitely now, now that I've, you know, expanded, I do think I'm a very like a historically minded person. And I think that's an African trait for sure. And just like being from the lineages of the Nagendas and the Fairweathers, their political families, like, like descended from political people. So. I don't think you can be into politics and not be into history. I don't think you can be into sociology, anthropology, psychology, and not to be in history. I don't know how you can't be into history, basically, because you're from it. <laughs> so right. yeah. for me, I'm kind of like, since humanity has so many problems, like I'd like to look back and see if humanity always had these problems. And right. to me, that even comes to that word origins and word culture, right? Because I'm not so like you have to be into etymology to be into philology because you need to know the word meanings. But philology is like why language developed the way it developed, right? Like why do Australians use different English than New Zealanders, than Canadians, than United States citizens and South Africans? Mm-hmm. And like what influenced that and like what cultures did we interact with that influenced that and what languages so it's history but like from a social perspective rather than from like a linear or numerical or event-based perspective you're like pinging all of my nerddom right now so (laughs) there's there's a whole nother direction I could go with you down that word direction and maybe we'll get there but I want to make sure that we talk about this chapter so um so yeah, so let's dive into this this chapter, which is called the history parentheses mystery of tarot. Yes, yes. And uh, anyone you know that's listening, I'm sure you know works with tarot knows that there is such a sort of mystery around the cards and their and their history. So um, towards the beginning of this chapter, you write, "quote What I will add to this conversation is a more cohesive narrative." of the lineage of the tarot itself, not from a mystical perspective, but rather from a geographical, cultural, and sociological perspective, end quote. So the first question actually that I would like to ask you is, when you started to sit down to write this chapter, was there a certain course correction that you wanted to make in the history of tarot, or were there certain elements that you knew you wanted to fill in that you haven't seen 
fleshed out before, you know, what would did you, what, like, what was the agenda behind the creation of this chapter for you, I guess, is my question. Yeah. Yeah. Such a wonderful question. Well, for me, I came to tarot experientially. I wasn't someone who read the books and then did the cards. Even when I bought a deck, I was more likely to shuffle and pull and then read. Whereas I know people who just like read, 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 and then they won't, they won't pull until they finish reading. So I was always someone who was um, trying to find a relevant experience through tarot rather than sort of like some definitive system. Mm -hmm. And so I did not, I was just on a panel at MoCA about witches and witchcraft. Like I did not come from some academic, like know how perspective of the tarot. And I've been practicing it for 12 years, but I had, and I also wasn't attracted to Rider Waite because it's very like Lily White Mm -hmm. for, you know, historical reasons. And so- I never really practiced with a writer weight and until like late, like I have the, now I have the, uh, <laughs> the melanated, you know, classic mm-hmm. tarot of writer weight. And so now I have one and it's funny because like, I never even re- realized, like I didn't even re- learn the original archetypes in mm-hmm. the tarot. So from a visual perspective, I didn't have any of the golden dawn, like any of the la- modern history of tarot, I didn't come from like a lineage of that being canon. Uh So when I, when Brittany asked me if I would write the chapter, I was like, yeah, I'll write it. But like, maybe I'll write it more from like a, you know, word perspective or like lineage perspective. Like, I'm not going to talk about the last 200 years of tarot, like, but I'll maybe figure out something beyond that, you know? Yeah. And she was like, that's fine. And so when I started doing the research, I was like, okay, well, like, how did the cards even get to to England? You know, I was like, how did they even get into the hands of these people who then influenced the history again? And how long was it in Europe? And where did it come from in Europe? And um, and I had already known based on some light link. etymology research that it had like an Italian connection. So for years, maybe I was like, okay, well, maybe it's from Italy or whatever. But then I was sort of looking at the images and I was like, this is decidedly like uncatholic. (laughs) Um, And so when I did the research, I was curious about how it arrived. And that curiosity led me down the rest of the paths, which I I wasn't prepared for. I didn't really know what I was going to find out. I just know the kind of researcher I am. And like with I um, I'm a Pisces, but my moon is in Taurus and my ascendant is in Capricorn. So I like to talk Mm -hmm. about it elementally as a river from bank to banky. Like it's there's water and there's curiosity and that drives. Right. Like it carves shit out. But at the same time, I need to know the facts. Mm-hmm. I'm more romance by finding information than I am by the information itself. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, I didn't have a pre-gone conclusion that I was working towards. I was more just like, what can I find out about this? Um, and so when I started the, the research, I actually just started reading all the books, all the canon books on tarot. 
mm-hmm. about what they said the history was. Right. And, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, what did you find? Yeah, like what did you find there? And 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 because what I what stood out to me about what, you, about what you just said is sort of, I mean, the approach you took is really an ideal approach, which is not um, seeking out to find what you already think, but just kind of seeing what you do find and then reporting honestly about you know what you find. Um, but we started, you know, this conversation by talking about the sort of mystery behind it. And so a mm-hmm. lot of those texts that are in tarot canon are thick with that kind of mystery. So, you know, mm-hmm. how did you piece that apart and how did you supplement that with more perhaps like academic sources or, you know, what was that process? Mm-hmm. I, you know, it was interesting because I found that first of all, tarot books, you know, whether, And when I say tarot books, I'm speaking about books that are about the technical, practical use of tarot. And usually those books will start with a little chapter on the history of tarot or, you know, or why it's a practice or what why it became practice. And most of those chapters began and stopped with just the British part of the story. Mm hmm. And with the little Jamaica bit and homegirl who made the writer wait and all the people whose name Huxley and all them motherfuckers. And and then that would be it, you know, uh-huh. because they're talking about because these are typically tarot books are written by practitioners. Right. Because those are the people who are interested. And also those what isn't written by practitioners, you know, like I cross I had to cross reference because it's tarot. It's like what's considered academic when you don't even take think the thing is legitimate. So I was looking more at like museums, Mm -hmm. you know, texts and other from other cultures and languages that had been translated that were maybe about these subjects. And so, so and then so the better tarot like tarot history education books would go back to Italy and then say at the very least tarot cards come from playing cards and playing cards were originally called mamluk cards and a story and they'd be like mamluk cards it's and then it would end so me being a word nerd and a word witch I'm like well what does mamluk mean and where's that word from and who gave that to you so I I'm immediately peek by there. Now, the difference that is interesting is that I think that the reason it like it's it when you say it's like a most definitive chapter, I'm very honored by that. But I'm also very surprised because doing my research, I was like, how has there not been a more <laughs> thorough right. research? Like, why didn't someone else say what was Mamluk and keep going? Yeah. And I think that that's because for a lot of those books, the the majority of the evidence energy goes towards the technique of how the person is explaining that you not only read tarot, but that you conceive of the archetypes. Right. So they're going off to have the Golden Dawn argument right. and they're and they're having the modern debate. And I'm that's not what for me is the history of tarot. So I'm like, OK, well, that the whole the entirety of their book emphasis is is irrelevant now. And I'm looking I'm like now combing for just any any chapter that says a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say it's not useful, because I do think that the Italian story is is the ancient European story. And so that's the one that 
the best books did comb through a bit more, um, especially when it comes to how playing cards got to tarot cards, because that was also not so much talked about in so many of the books. But for me, once I saw mom look at, mentioned enough times, that sent me down like the rabbit hole of <laughs> all like all the things that ended up in the chapter. Yeah. So who who are the Mamluks? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So the Mamluks. Okay. so I was looking at. So I don't know if this is in the book book is why I'm front porching this, but this is what's in my notes of the book. And it says the Mamluks were a special caste of enslaved peoples within Muslim states who had been a staple and designated class of enslaved people since the rise of the first caliphate. Um, So that's around like 600 folks. Right. Because that's when Muhammad was assassinated or died from poison Mm. um and back then the first muslims from the caliphate and spread the practice of islam through conquest right so first conquest of other um muslim states and then of course the crusades we come to the crusades in the beginning of the thousands um and there's the fact that the word slave comes from slav Mm-hmm. comes from the fact that so many Slavs were captured for this purpose that their name became the word for slave. So like, ultimately, these two facts are connected. But from there, I say the word Mamluk itself means owned in Arabic and has long been used to describe the peoples that were most desired as enslaved peoples by the various Sunni Muslim states of the time. First called caliphates and then eventually sultanates, these enslaved peoples were primarily from the Black Sea region, namely the Balkans, the former state of Circassia, as well as around the Caspian Sea. So that's the Slava connection. Um, by the time this enslavement route was well underway, the majority of the people who were enslaved were of uh, Kipchak, Turk, Turkic origin, with a second large wave of the enslaved people being specifically of Circassian heritage from at least the mid 14th century onward because the Kipchak had basically been enslaved into extinction. So at first it was the Kipchak Turkic people and that was more in the Asia part of Eurasia. And then when those people had basically been wiped out it became more of the Balkans people, Circassian heritage, people of Slavic heritage in the Eurasian area. So we're distinctively talking about like where the Byzantine Roman empire and where the Roman Empire were having a conversation. And then there were these Kipchak Turkic and these Circassian people who weren't even Catholics. Most of them, they practiced other things, which is why they were uh, highly sought after and enslavable for geographical war based and religious reasons, um, which we can get into a little bit later. But like basically almost for. Like at the point that we're talking that the cards come into play. So like almost almost a thousand years, like about 800 years of these Kipchak, these Circassian people, these Turkic people being captured for the purpose of enslavement by the caliphate and by the sultanates um, and then being a class of people amongst the sultanates, depending on the region that became a powerful class of people because, for instance, in Egypt, this is far away from the Levant. This is far away from Iran and, you know, they didn't have planes and stuff. So like this is this is uh, months of travel away. And the indigenous population is not Muslim. 
So in North Africa, yes, there were the Moors and there were indigenous Muslim populations, but Egypt particularly was not that place. It had been conquered for centuries and centuries by different people. And it had had a lot of cultural turnover and a lot of religious turnover. And people basically believed whatever they wanted to believe. So the Mamluks in Egypt particularly became a warrior class because there were not enough indigenous Muslim people to be a part of the warrior class. You had to be um, converted. And you had to claim you practiced um, and believed in Muhammad, but it you were the over you were the police class. So you also no one was overseeing you but you, and you were basically holding the region together on behalf of the Sultan of your region or the Caliphate of your region. So in Egypt, the Mamluks were a warrior class, whereas in more of the Iran region, the Mamluks were more of an enslaved class. Got it. And there were, were you enough. Able, yeah. Were Go you ahead. able to identify which of those groupings the cards mm -hmm. first started to come come in through? Yeah, well, the Circassian people were at by this time, right, because it had only been eight, 800 years. So the Kipchak people were gone. And even if they weren't gone, their descendants were more in the Iran regions in Egypt. We're dealing with Circassian people. Now, the mystery here is that we don't know like there. I haven't done the research yet. And, I, and, and probably at, at some point, this will be much longer topic based writing for me. But like, mm -hmm. are these the descent, like the ancient ancestors of who became the Romani? Very possibly. Is this something that they had some sort of leanings towards? Because the other part that's so fascinating is that like paper had to be invented. OK, right, right. <laughs> tarot didn't exist until paper existed and paper was invented in China. Yeah. And it was and it made its way to the Levant, what we call the Middle East and to Europe, you know, after after like one thousand. <laughs> you know, so whatever, even if these were the descendants of the Romani, they the Romani didn't have paper. So maybe these were people who like the Circassians didn't have paper, so they had some esoteric practices that made them more open than Muslim culture. Mm -hmm. Right. But basically, the argument I'm kind of making in my chapter is like, we don't know if this came out of some tomb of Egypt that right. these people decided to crack open. We don't know if this was transferred from papyrus to paper. We don't know if this was transferred from rune to paper. Like, we don't know exactly who made it. We just know that in this time under these people and the first woman and only woman sultan and caliphate that these cards made it out of Egypt and found their way to Europe. And from there, Tara was born. Yeah. Tell us about that first female sultan. Yes. Shajar Aldur. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because my presumption, she was it was a it was not a grand scheme. Um, the Crusades had been going on for a really long time. And 
hundreds of thousands of people had died. <laughs> and like and so in Egypt, the sultan is constantly holding back Europeans because they're right across the water and they've been traveling there forever. And so in that particular region, he was burning through Mamluk people. He was burning through Muslim people. He was burning through the indigenous population. And eventually the fight was brought to his actual doorstep and he got mortally wounded. So he was, you know, probably in some uh, comatose state for a while while his wife and his Mamluk lieutenants were trying to figure out what to do while his son was to come. Um, But, you know, because of the way that marriage works in this time and in this region, I don't know that this is her son. Um, It could be a son from a previous marriage. He's fully grown um, and she's fairly young. So like that seems likely. And I might have even written that it is that way because I'm I'm having some vague memory of her not being his first wife. Mm. But basically he has to travel from far. He's dealing with some other region. And in the meantime, like they're protecting whether the king is whether the sultan is dead or not, because once he's dead, that gives the other sultanates around the opportunity to sort of try and take over Egypt as opposed to his own lineage. But so they lied and were basically like, he's not dead, but he's ill. And they lied until the son got there and then the son found out he was dead. And so there was all these politics, (laughs) really all this politics around just holding Egypt as as the caliphate um, and holding it from Europe because the Crusades was very serious. Like they were literally they thought they were fighting for the souls of people. So um, so basically the prince in some way, shape or form wasn't really down with the level of control that the Mamluk people uh, like soldier class wanted because he hadn't had to concede all the things that his father had to concede in order to continue the battle. So he felt he was coming in, in my presumption, like as I read it, he was coming into a situation which is like, I'm the Sultan and you should just be doing what I say, Mm -hmm. not knowing like the refined politics of that region, whereas the wife did. Mm -hmm. So basically the wife and the Mamluks plotted and they killed the prince because he was just not going to be able to deal with the politics. And so because she was the only natural connection to the legitimate rulers, she was placed temporarily and against the wishes of all other caliphates as um, you know, reigning sultan at the moment. But she was put on as co ruler mm-hmm. with the captain of the Mamluks. OK, is there much written about her? Uh, not in English. Yes. Yeah. OK. But, you know, very possibly um, in the native in the native tongues, in the native cultures of that region, in that place. And there was enough for me to find like theses written in English. So I, I, I suspect that she's a figure, but mm-hmm. because she's the first and last, meaning like they don't want that. I also think that, you know, she's not um, necessarily um, widely covered. No. <laughs> yeah. Or praised. Right. Um, because then you would praise 
that behavior archetypally and that behavior archetypally is, you know, take over. So what's interesting about her, though, is that, like, of course, not only a co-ruler, but set up in marriage Mm -hmm. to this chieftain and all the caliphates around being in arms because the Mamluks are not supposed to have these positions. Mm -hmm. It's just in Egypt, he needed the manpower. Right. So now all the other caliphates have to sort of contend with the Mamluks who are loosely Muslim, let's say culturally Muslim, not religiously Muslim, Muslims of convenience, practicing whatever. And so basically she dies very quickly because her and the Mamluk chief politics and then betrayal. And then she she thinks he's going to take her out. She takes him out. Then Mm -hmm. she's a single woman. So then trying to take her out, I think she takes herself out in the end. But in this period, somehow, somewhere, some way, printed Mamluk cards make their way from somewhere in Egypt, which is where the oldest carbon dated playing cards and tarot cards have been dated back to from around 1100. Mm-hmm. that the cards are from, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know where they come from, but they, we do know that they're on paper. They might even be on papyrus too. I'm not sure. Okay. So it makes their way, they make their way to Italy. And at this point, it is literally playing cards. Right. It's not the major arcana. Those come 100 years later somehow after the 1300s. But what makes their way from that era of rulership is... The playing cards. Yeah, yeah. So one element of that that I would love to talk about that you bring up in the chapter is the fact that the court cards have not always contained four cards, that Mm -hmm. it was three. Um, And the reason I, so I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm I'm very nerdy about all of this because I'm very sort of, uh, I really want us to move beyond the Smith Rider weight deck. So I'm right on board with you, you know, with that. And I think it's sometimes helpful to know that there's precedent for other, you know, structuring of the decks, yeah. you know, just to feel like, okay, great. It's possible. So like, I think it's very interesting how we have a King and a queen in our modern day world, because there's literally no difference between those job titles besides just their gender, you know? So I loved reading that there is precedent for, you know, three cards in the courts. Um, but will you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, the fun part. So when it made its way from, So basically playing cards made the oldest carbon dated cards are from Egypt, but playing cards were began gain popularity throughout the Levant and throughout the Caliphate because um, like dicing and and card games were something that a lot of the soldiers played. And so um, obviously that has to trickle down because paper is expensive from like some sort of royal or very wealthy uh, person, but eventually becomes popularized enough to make its way into the layperson's hand. Mm-hmm. And so at that time when people were playing cards in the Levant, it was the Sultan, the Lieutenant and the like second att- Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And when the cards made their way to Europe, 
this got turned into the king, the knight. Actually, in fact, I think in the beginning, it was just played that way. And it wasn't a popular game. It wasn't getting popularity because in Europe, they didn't have these things like they didn't have polo. They didn't have clubs. They didn't have these things. So they couldn't really relate to the game. And so I think someone maybe probably to like save a profit (laughs) was like paint something else. Mm -hmm. And they had queens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they they didn't change. I mean, I think it probably went through a few iterations. I think in some regions there was a king, a queen and a knight. In some regions there was a a king, a knight and like another another kind of knight or something. (laughs) Eventually the page made its way in certain regions to replace the lieutenant. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the sultan was replaced by the king more or less immediately. And then the lieutenant by the knight. And there was those three. So I think it was the king, knight and the page. Um, but a lot of those regions at the time, I guess, had queens. So eventually somebody either re- replaced, like I think you could f- sometimes find a king, a queen and a knight and no page or added the queen. But basically the queen was the addition There were always three male characters. But the interesting thing is in some regions, the page was a woman Mm -hmm. because it was like, I don't know exactly. And I I wrote about it in my extended chapter. So I'll have to look through it again at some point. But like the page would alternate depending on the country between being a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. So I think of it as the trans guard. Yeah, because right. it it flips, and 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 historically that was it. Whereas once the queen had been solidified, the queen remained because there were a lot of queens at that time, um, and they and it was more re- relatable to people, like they could yeah. play the games easier. I mean, what's so interesting is that, like, you know, it really shows how it was the influence of that those you know kind of. 1700s esotericists and the golden dawn that sort of added this sense of like reaching back to history that that's what made the tarot legitimate whereas before it was really responding to the current culture you know the current country where it was the it reflected the actual people that were there you know the actual monarchy that was present or you know structure that was present so I just think that's really interesting and and helpful to know that that it you know it, it hasn't always had this like reach back um to like gain meaning or something. Um not at all. And it's yeah. funny because that's even that's even a symptom of the modernity of 1800s. Right. Where they're like, you know, the the printing press was common and now everyone and paper is has made its way all across the Silk Roads and like everyone has paper. And so they're assuming that that is the experience. But the experience was that it would had to be some courtly figures. I like what I propose in the book is that was probably a more who brought it over to Spain because it started in Spain, actually, but it quickly made its way to Italy, which is where it was popularized. But it came through Spain because they were using batons. Mm-hmm. They, that's where wands comes from, that they had clubs because in the Levant they played polo. Mm-hmm. So clubs like the symbols were clubs and cups and coins and swords. 
And so as that move, like when it got to France somehow, I don't know, they were like, we're not in these cups. So they made them hearts. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and people like changed the suits too. So even the suits were responding to people. And then it was like, how long was the was the court courtly people or rich people playing this game for it to trickle down for them to get bored with it for the right. next novelty game and it to trickle down to the working class. Yeah. And I, I, I like how in the chapter you emphasize the minor suit a lot. You know, you you um, you point out that although the major arcana cards make up kind of what we think of as tarot and make it unique that the miners actually make up 72% of the deck and are therefore, you know, very, very important as well. Um, and you actually write quote, I would argue that the lineages of the suit cards themselves boast all the qualities of the suit themes. And I, I'd love to hear you kind of open that up a little bit. Yeah. As I was slowly like doing my little readings about, you know, cups, the story of how even the story of like, when you because I, for instance, for me as a tarot reader, I read aces high. So mm. for me, the suit starts with two oh, and so cool. ends with ace. Mm. And I think of ace as the the barrier between the major and the minor arcana. Mm. And so uh, like when you look at the story of wands from two to ace. This is giving as much as two, three, four, five cards in the major arcana. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it, the story between like the two, the guy's like, oh, what a wonderful world. And three's like, I'm going to go check it out. And four, he's having a really good time. And by five, he's like, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> yeah. And at six, he's like, it's all right, it's fine, I guess. And then at seven, something happened. Because <laughs> after this fanfare, he's back up against the wall. And then the shit hits the fan for the, for the one. So you're like looking at this huge story in the suit itself. And then there's also the history of like it being them choosing batons, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that there was this, like that they had a need for this thing and that cups, you know, why these symbols? Mm. And this is coming out of this is a question that comes out of Egypt or comes out of the Circassian Mountains or comes out of China or comes out of some deep Muslim like indigenous practice that got swept under the rug and was esoteric. So like, we don't know why they chose the symbols and all of that is as big a part of why tarot is archetypal and able to be used in this way as the tarot itself. Like the whole history of tarot is, is, is divination. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I just want to ask you how all of this research and writing this chapter, how it's changed your practice, if at all. You know, it it's changed my practice in that I respect the tarot a lot more. Mm. Like now that it's not so tied to that modern history. And now that I know that the tarot, that like the, that the tarot formed itself because no matter where you want to look and how you want to go. And even if we were in all the languages, we would not be able to speak for how it ended up in the hands of one person and then another and then another. It's the thing itself that required that. Yeah. And it's the thing itself that called for that. Right. It's the same way. I mean, I think of it in in the way that Jumanji is. Right. right? You're like the game calls you. Yeah. And what's so cool about the minor tarot showing up 
And then the major arcana showing up is also like they were playing this as a game. We don't right. even know the original game and we don't know. And obviously cards at the time, all I have to do is like watch a Jane Austen movie uh, uh, to know like how much do you talk over cards? Mm-hmm. And so who's to say like they weren't always reading each other for filth while they were playing cards, right? Like, and what are they saying when the heart is being played? And what are they saying when the spate, like we're not asking those questions. Right. And so it itself, like it's a, it's, it's an archetype, you know, it's its own entity. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I respect tarot a lot more as a, as an archetype. I don't think of it as person made. Right. You know, in a way that any ri- good writer will be like the book wrote itself. Yeah. You no. Know, yeah. I really like, appreci- I channeled it. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, you're like decentering the humans part of the story, you know, and like it's that's very that's a very helpful way, I think, to look at it and to respect the tarot for just the journey that it's taken. And yeah. Um, yeah. And that I- it took us on. And also the funny thing is even what humanity put towards it, we were, it was, we were fumbling. It was by accident. Like we had no idea in so many ways when you create something brilliant that you don't know that you're creating it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you might feel something, but you like, you don't know exactly how that brainchild is going to come together. Right. So wherever they came out of Egypt and however they were excavated from there, we don't even know the intent of the original creators if this was that or if this is what, you know, all that time the terror was just permeating that it created a, its own influence. So yeah. I just love the idea. I almost think of it as, uh, you know, in like the Mickey Mouse cartoons and stuff where they, they're smelling something good from the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the air and then like they lift up from bed and they go follow the air. But that very much seems like what Tara was, because it was like it was going to get in the hands of people. Right. Or it makes me think of the ring and Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you're. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so to close our conversation, um, you know, you went searching on this incredible journey of finding this history of tarot and writing this chapter. And I'm wondering what you are in search of now in your life. It's very funny. I did not like I was not a part of Twitter even when it was happening or when it was not chaotic um, or as chaotic as it is now, (laughs) because I think it's always been chaotic. Um, And I feel like, ironically, a lot of writers get picked up on Twitter, Mm -hmm. you know, even though there's no writing space. Like I I Twitter was going to always infuriate me as a writer. So like I didn't even bother like frustrating myself, trying to like whittle things down. but so so for like years, especially since I've been writing about history and words, people have been like, when are you going to write a book? And when are you going to write a book? And I know so many people who have been offered book deals who write less than me. And I'm writing like prolifically and no one has offered me a book deal. So yeah. I just decided I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to get over my annoyance and I'm going to write book proposals for my books, which I think is meta and silly because the book you write the book. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it explains itself. But now you want me to write a book about my book. Yeah. So I'm about, so this year I'm going to be writing some books about my books uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and getting some things published. I, you know, appropriately, I don't think that I'll write a tarot book probably for another five to 10 years because there's so much to learn. 
But right now I'm writing like uh, finishing up a high fantasy epic trilogy like that I've been writing since I was 16. I'm only on the first book, but I have all of them constructed. So I'm rewriting that so I can Mm -hmm. send publishers because they were like, this is cute, but you need to rewrite it because I was writing it. You know, it was my like high school mind. And now I'm 30. I'm about to be 36. So I I got updated a little bit. Um, And then I have this book I call like a multi a a kind of multidimensional memoir called Dear Love Letters, which is a series of love letters that I wrote to life and people and cities and places and things um, and to my frustrations over from 2018 through quarantine. Um, So I'll be doing that. And then. Um, the only other things other than readings that I'll be doing is sort of more workshops and public speaking about quantum energetics, which I teach a lot about. Um, and quantum energetics, the short, my byline is uh, using your your actual body and your life as a form of divination. Mm-hmm. Um, and using the quantum mechanics of life to divine what what direction you should be going or what you should be doing or who you should be with Mm -hmm. um, because the signs are there. Um, And so using, you know, life's archetypes in 3D and in Mm -hmm. four dimensions to feel secure in your decision making, Um, whether you use tarot or not, whether you have your tarot cards or not, that you don't panic, that you just realize that the archetypes are four dimensional. Uh Uh-huh. Very cool. Yeah. I can't wait to read your writing. Um, Yeah. So yeah. Thank you so much for this. This has been an amazing, amazing conversation. Um, Will you just tell everybody how they can find you and follow you and also buy the book? Yes, please buy Tarot for Pregnancy by Brittany Carmona Halt. Um, art by Kimberly Rodriguez. Brittany literally just had a baby. So yep. Brittany is using Brittany's book <laughs> right now, um, <laughs> applying this literally. But um, as a reader, I think it's also important because obviously at some point, somebody pregnant is going to sit down with you. And it's right. important that you have some tools for them if you can have those tools. So please buy the book. Um, it's from Row House Publishing. You can find me at my name, Sanyu Estelle. That's S A. And is a Nancy Y-U and then Estelle E-S-T-E-L-L-E. Um, that's dot com. That's me on Instagram. That's me on TikTok. That's even me on Twitter, even though I'm never there. I have maybe <laughs> one tweet that I tweeted like four or five years ago. Um, and um, ideally more places as this year of the chariot takes off. We're going to see where 2023 takes us. And was there anything coming up in March that you wanted to mention? Yes, I will. I'm organizing um, officially teaching some quantum energetic workshops because there's multiple tools in the quantum energetics toolkit that I like to give to people because um, we're not, you know, some people are list makers, some people need multiple synchronicities, some people are auditory. So there's multiple tools. And by March, I should be teaching quantum energetics 101 and eventually have a pathway for you guys to take workshops on the various types of like tools in the toolkit. So look for awesome. That. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. This has been great. Thanks, Nick. It's been amazing. Thank you for talking to me. In Search of Tarot is independently written, recorded, edited, and transcribed by Nick Kepley and Angie Miller. You can follow Angie on Instagram at birdgirl underscore, that's B-I-R-D-G-E-R-H-L underscore. And you can follow me, Nick, on Instagram at In Search of Tarot. Have a question or a comment? 
email us at isotpod at gmail.com. We also invite you to leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.